TGIMT Marie. This is episode 311. If you don't drink, you won't get drunk. <laughs> and it sort of gave me this light bulb that, oh, I have a choice. I don't have to pick up the first drink. Life is always working in your favor. You can't heal in the same environment you became sick. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Emmy. Emmy took her last drink on December 8th, 2019. She is from Texas and she is 30 years old. Before we kick off today, I wanted to give a few team shout outs. As you all know, with every episode, we provide show notes and writing show notes for the RE podcast is a rotating volunteer position. It's been a little over six months since Katie, aka my show notes queen, is taking care of the show notes. Katie's always going to have a super special place in my heart because A, she took over the show notes when I took over the podcast. So we both started something new together, new for us. And B, we're both very much obsessed with spicy chili mango from Trader Joe's. So I wanted to take this moment to say thanks, Katie, for all of the work that you did with the show notes. I am so, so grateful for you. On that note, I also want to take a moment to welcome Liz. Liz is going to be taking care of the show notes for the next six months, and I'm very excited. Liz is also a Cafe Ari member, and I'm just thrilled that we get to interact more because of this. Something else that is very important for the podcast is editing. So thank you, Ty, for editing not only our interviews, but also my intros, where I know you find Spanglish and mispronunciation and just all sorts of ums and ifs and things that you have to cut out and edit week after week. Moral of this shout out story is teamwork makes the dream work. This is definitely not a one-woman show, but a circus of many of us working together from a distance with a mission of just having fun and helping people along the way. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. I've been having a lot of conversations around a topic that I'm not a fan of addressing. The topic is being an adult child of an alcoholic. I noticed a trend. I noticed I'm proud to say that recovery runs in my family. I'm proud to talk about my dad and how he overcame his addiction and how now I'm overcoming mine. And it feels good to share about the fact that we're changing the trajectory of our family. But there's a part of the equation that I've been leaving out, partly because of shame, partly because of fear, and partly because of denial. No matter what your childhood was like, Being a child of an alcoholic creates baggage. It creates ripples. It creates behaviors. It creates coping mechanisms. It's someone else's actions that have a deep consequence in us, in our families. And when you struggle with control like I do, this is hard to grasp. Because in my mind, when I decided I wanted to recover, I took charge. I took my power back. I took control. I believe in surrendering to things that aren't up to me, but for some reason, when it came to addressing the residual wreckage that growing up in an alcohol home brought, I thought I could just skip that chapter. 
I thought that in taking ownership and responsibility for myself and my journey, I would heal all the wounded parts in me. And for a while, that worked. There's no doubt that as we take books out of our baggage backpack, the load gets lighter. I've known for a while that there was one book in my baggage backpack that I didn't want to take out. It clearly wasn't just going to magically disappear, so I just chose to ignore it for a little bit. I had to, at some point though, grab it and open it. And so I've mustered the courage to finally starting addressing this. This book is called Self-Sabotage. Self-sabotage is a very common trait in children of alcoholics. There has been pain in our families and our normal emotional state is a bit disheveled. We live waiting for the other shoe to drop. We are guarded and careful and ready for the fall. This becomes what we know. This is our normal. This overall feeling that there's something wrong all the time, even when it doesn't seem like it from the outside. So when things are actually going well and chaos isn't present, our brain gets really confused. This can't be real, our brain thinks. Something must be wrong. The status quo is for something to always be wrong. So in trying to reconcile this craziness where things seem to be going well, our brain orchestrates the disaster itself, thinking that if we can control the disaster, then the pain will be less palpable because we saw it coming. Sadly, the pain is still very much there and we ruin our chances for change. We ruin the chance for a better and a different outcome, a good outcome, because to our surprise, those are actually possible for us, for all of us. That just feels very foreign though. I've been stuck in a pattern of self-sabotage for years in many different aspects of my life, some more dangerous than others. For example, I broke my boyfriend's heart in high school, my high school sweetheart. He was perfect. There was nothing he could have done to hurt me, yet I just broke up with him. I didn't know why, but I just needed things to end. I got into my school of preference for college, and then two years later, I asked for a transfer. I had the best roommate, my grades were perfect, and I had to get myself out of the situation. I pick fights for no reason, I don't trust people, even though it seems like I do, and I almost filed for divorce, thinking that things are going to end badly anyways, so I may as well just save myself the pain and run away, end it myself, be in control. I hate, with a capital H, I hate admitting that self-sabotage is a trait of an adult child of an alcoholic that I have lived with, a trait that haunts me. I hate the label, I hate the consequences, and I hate that I can't just get rid of it by just wishing it away. I hate it because it scares me so much, because it makes me feel so defeated. Like no matter how much I want to change, the trait in my brain is so learned that I will end up ruining things anyway. It's like when you're trying to get sober and you keep finding yourself back at day one. I imagine these grooves in my brain. Every time we practice a different behavior, a new groove gets created. And when we repeat that behavior, 
the groove gains depth. Only through acknowledging this cycle have I been able to make small shifts, to see things differently, as I always say. No matter how destructive our behavior has been in the past, we are able to experience new ways of being. I just hope someone who needed to hear this today is listening. All right, eso es todo. And before we hear from Emmy, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe Ari, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe Ari is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. With supportive and educational webinars hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $19 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online webinars, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Emmy, how's it going? How are you today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited that we finally are doing this. I know we connected a few weeks ago, so thank you. You're welcome. I'm really excited. Let's get right into it. When was the last time you had a drink, Emmy? My last drink was in the wee hours of December 8, 2019. Perfect. And can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, I'm, I live in Fort Worth, Texas right now. For a living, I'm actually a recreational therapist. So I work with children and adults with various disabilities, a lot of community integration and teaching them life skills. I'm 30 years old. I'm not married, no kids, but I live with my little five-year-old dog. (laughs) Her name's Petey. So I have a question, a technical question. You are a recreational therapist. How has COVID impacted your job? And I just, from what you shared, community integration. I mean, community itself has been (laughs) jeopardized and all of the curveballs have been thrown at any component of connection. So how has this shifted this year for you? You are totally right. Everything has shifted. <laughs> for a while, a lot of my visits were just telehealth. So that's been a completely new skill to be learned how to do these sessions online and face-to-face via um, Zoom. And in public, I still kind of do community outings, but it's teaching them skills like safety and activities of daily living, you know, wearing a mask, keeping social distance from others, which is kind of already what I try to teach my clients, like appropriate distance from people. So this is kind of just another reason to be doing that. Wow. But it's been different. Lots of lessons learned. Yeah, I can imagine just doing telehealth. I mean, my therapy appointments have switch to telehealth. So it's an adjustment for everyone. And Emmy, you skipped to the most important question. What do you like to do for fun? Ah, I love this <laughs> question. And it's it's funny because I'm, I'm similar to a lot of people. I'm still really discovering that lately. My fun has been my participation in my recovery. I am 
eating this stuff up, <laughs> really getting to know who I am without um, substances and learning to be my own friend, which is something I never thought would be an interest of mine. So, you know, it's kind of just simple. And finding out every day what what I do like to do is kind of the adventure right now. So, Yeah, thanks for sharing and just for being vulnerable with that response. I feel like my definition of what this journey means varies. And one of them is just like finding a way back to myself again, similar to what you described and befriending myself and enjoying time alone and all of these things that we were too busy doing or for a lot of us we maybe didn't have the most positive relationship with ourselves, which is so bizarre because we spend all of our life (laughs) with ourselves. So I'm glad you're exploring that. And I think what also tends to happen is you don't only start only realizing what you enjoy doing, but you also start realizing what you don't enjoy doing that maybe you were just doing for the sake of doing. So true. So true. Can you give me a little background on your history with drinking, Emmy? When did you start? When did you realize it was a problem? And when did you decide to start this journey? Sure. I was around 16 or 17. Sorry, mom. I'm sure she knows. But anyway, (laughs) I was at a friend's house. And I just remember somebody had brought over a bottle of alcohol mixed with Propel And I thought it was really cool. I remember my first sip giving me this sort of warm feeling inside and it was fuzzy. And I was like, nothing ever bad can happen with this. So I kind of kept that routine going about every weekend when I was a teenager. And then once I went to college, there was always kind of an excuse to drink every night, whether it was, you know, trivia night or intramural sports. That was a big one. There was, I joined as many teams as I could just so I could have an excuse to drink. And then I also worked in a restaurant while going um, in college. So I would, you know, drink behind the bar and everybody was doing it. So it didn't really seem like a problem at the time. And then I graduated college, took a little break from schooling and worked in a nursing home by day and then another restaurant at night. So I was working 50 to 60 hours a week. And that, again, gave me kind of another excuse to be like, man, I'm working so hard. And every night kind of turned into a couple drinks. And then sometimes, you know, overdid it. Most of the time overdid it. But I felt like I worked hard, so I deserved it, which is not the case. At this point, were you starting to question your relationship with alcohol or were you just like, this is what people do. I'm in the grind. This is kind of the lifestyle that I'm in. Or were you, like you said, finding situations where you were able to enable yourself? Were you thinking any of this stuff? I definitely from day one at age 16, I was like, this is maybe going to be a problem in the future. You know, I didn't see it as a problem in the very beginning because I was surrounded by so many people doing the same thing. But I think it was like, this is going to be something I have to explore later. But it was never a problem yet. And I know yet is a huge word with recovery. So I kind of figured I would just like take care of it later on, later on down the road. Gotcha. Okay. And then walk me through what happened afterwards. You're still working at this nursing home and at the mm-hmm. bar. And then how did that progress? So I kind of didn't really think I was getting anywhere and I wasn't. So I went back to grad school and without, I won't get into too much detail with that because it was kind of just round two of undergrad. And I thought, you know, I'm in school so I can still kind of live the same lifestyle. And then I graduated and got a job 
in another nursing home as sort of like a director position. So it was a bigger responsibility. And then I wasn't surrounded by as many people who drank like I did. And it wasn't the norm anymore. So this is kind of when I started putting out my feelers to different people. I found myself kind of asking the wrong people because I wanted to ask people who drank like me if they thought I had a problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them said that I didn't. And so I sort of believed that. And I was always searching for outside validation for a lot of different things anyway. So I really took their validation to heart that I wasn't, I didn't have a problem. So took me a few more years kind of just like going down this path of drinking pretty regularly. And I think I was able, I, I, I didn't think I had a problem because of what the others had told me. And then sometimes I could still have fun. So I was like, well, this is still fun. I don't like, this isn't a problem because problem drinkers have a terrible time every time. So there's no way I have a problem. And then um, I had also had examples, you know, in my life before of what alcoholism looked like. So I thought I was going to have control and not become that. So I thought I could just continue drinking. Yeah, especially if you were still functional. And like you said, in a way, asking the people that we know are going to give us the answer that we want is a way of justifying it. So it sounds like part of you, which is normal, part of you was aware and maybe having second thoughts, but the other part wasn't necessarily ready to let go. So it's this little push pull for a little bit. At this point, were you creating any rules for yourself, like moderation rules or things like that? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) We all. I'd be like, don't drink on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, you know, but then a Tuesday or Wednesday would slip in here and there, whatever, you know, I'd break my rules all the time. And that just doubled down on the guilt and shame and felt like I couldn't really do anything. And then I actually, after that job, moved to Texas. And that's kind of when I exposed myself because I wasn't around anybody I knew anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of started drinking alone. And it still didn't get too, too bad. I didn't think, you know, I could still have a glass or two of wine and feel fine the next day. I was still getting up for work. You know, I got a really good job nothing was really taken away from me. So I didn't think it was a problem. You said earlier in the interview how powerful the word yet is. And I feel like uh, you and I have similar chapters in our stories where we you, you look around and you create this inventory of your life and you're like, well, I haven't gotten arrested yet. I haven't, I don't have a DUI yet. And that is very hard because that in itself is enabling. And I feel like it's this just contradiction, inner turmoil of the heart pulling in one direction and the brain pulling in another. And that's exhausting. Were you tired mentally? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's kind of what led me into just admitting defeat, complete defeat. You know, a couple years after moving to Texas, and just kind of doing the same thing over and over. And I know I hear this so often, but I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was sick of being pulled out of any moment of life. I was not a participant of life at all. Um, And as I said earlier, like my job is working with people with disabilities. There's so many amazing moments that are possible with my job. And I was just sucked out of those for, for those two years while continuing drinking. I'm curious, did you have any people in your life at this point that were either pursuing sobriety or battling with addiction? 
So yes, I, um, without, you know, giving too much detail, I'd grown up around alcoholism, like a lot of it. (laughs) I've got, you know, extended family, just immediate family have kind of struggled with a little bit of it. And so, like I said, that was, those are my examples of it. But I'd also had, you know, little seeds planted throughout the past probably 10 years of people who decided to get into recovery. And I always thought that was so cool. Like, I was like, wow, that person like is choosing to not drink anymore. That is so neat. Maybe I'll do that one day, but never really thought I could do it, you know? So what made you change your mind? Well, (laughs) it was December 7th and I had previously been in an abusive relationship and I, there was just something that day that kind of set me off and triggered me thinking I was unsafe and it kind of sent me back to um, the times I was in that relationship. And I started drinking just kind of normally. I was actually um, in California for a vacation and I just kind of started drinking and I realized like this isn't going to end well because I kept kind of sneaking little drinks when no one was looking. I would, you know, chug my glass of wine and, you know, be like, can I have another glass of wine? And just kind of kept sneaking different drinks from different people. So not everybody would know how much I'd had to drink. And I ended up treating somebody pretty poorly that night. And it was, it was very eye opening because it was the first blackout that I've ever, I've had a lot of blackouts. It was the first blackout I ever came out of on the other side, if that makes sense. Like I stayed up so long that I I was coming out of my blackout and realizing that I was in the middle of like yelling at somebody. And I was like, what am I doing? And then I happened to be in front of a mirror and I looked at myself in that mirror and I was like, you have completely lost who you are and I don't want to live like this anymore. And so it was just kind of literally this out of body experience. I was looking at myself, you know, figuratively, but also in a mirror and just realizing that I didn't want to be that person anymore. And from there, I faced a lot of shame and guilt the next couple of days and then finally just reached out for help in desperation. That's a powerful moment. Thank you for sharing. I mean, I feel like you talk about not having these stereotypical rock bottom moments, but I think that the experience that you had where you were literally looking at yourself in the mirror, that's a very unique moment to hit your bottom to like, sometimes it's people who want to put a mirror in front of us or relationships or a therapist or somebody else. But it sounds like in an instant, you had some sort of like self intervention where you're like, don't even know yourself and you decide that you don't want to not recognize yourself anymore. And I think that's extremely powerful. Wow. That I had never thought of it like that. And that, yeah, that was good job. That was really powerful. That's so powerful. And I want to ask if you're comfortable answering was, do you think a lot of the progression of your drinking as a way to cope with the pain from this abusive relationship and just a way is to process this trauma? Was the drinking? Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. And now, you know, I don't, I don't like to think of myself as a victim anymore. I feel very empowered from all the healing and counseling and everything I've been doing. But honestly, like the drinking was an excuse or no, the abusive relationship I started using as an excuse, you know, I, I sort of threw a pity party and I'm not trying to be too hard on myself, but I was throwing this pity party that 
I thought because I'd been in this abusive relationship that my drinking habits and behaviors were excusable. But yes, it was coping um, while in the relationship and then right after too. Yeah, it seems like what was happening inside of you almost attracted that relationship in a way. I feel like my therapist has always told me, you know, you attract people that are in the same energetic frequency as you and there's no good or bad. We we are all flawed and imperfect. But a lot of the times what's happening inside is what's being manifested in our external life. So like you, I'm really impressed by your self-awareness to be like, I almost grabbed on to this relationship as a way to continue drinking as well versus the versus blaming the relationship and just sitting on this like martyr role which a lot of us including myself spend a lot of time like stuck in absolutely wow so you said that you decided to reach out for help what did that look like for you oh this is like my favorite part of the whole journey (laughs) so leading up to this day there's one of my clients' mothers is very active in her program. She's been 30, um, sober for 30 years, has pretty similar story to me. And I was leading up to it for the two years. I was like, that would be somebody I'm going to reach out to in the future. Always in the back of my head. So once I got to this, you know, reflection mirror moment, I was like, okay, it's time to reach out to her. And I remember dropping off my client at her home, walking up to that door and my feet were so heavy that night. But I I didn't even know what to say to her, but I just pretty much collapsed in her arms and was sobbing. And she was like, I know, like, I didn't have to say anything to her. She knew exactly what was going on. And she gave me some suggestions. She didn't point in my face like, you need to go to this group. You need to go get help. She was like, here's here's an option. Um, And she'd been going to this 12 step group for quite a few years and said, it's just really, you know, feels safe to me and it worked for me. Maybe go try it, you know, and didn't put a whole lot of pressure on me. So I felt super safe and something I wanted to do, you know. So did you try it? I did. I went that night. So there was a 10 o'clock PM meeting, which is way past my bedtime, but I sort of hugged her, you know, right, right as I was leaving and there was a shooting star. It was this magical moment. Mm. Um, So I was like, there's no way I can't go to this meeting. So I went to the meeting And it was the most amazing, relieving, uh, incredible night of my entire life to sit there and listen to people who have been through the exact same things as me and just showing me love and acceptance and no judgment and telling me things and empowering me. Just just really, really cool experience. And I've been going back ever since. So. How big was the relief you felt when she held you and she was just like, I know. It was, I can't even explain it. It was the most like the heaviest, heaviest, heaviest weights just being lifted off my shoulders. Just even in that moment, like I hadn't even said anything or admitted anything yet or told her what happened that weekend or anything, but it was, it was really cool. Yeah. I don't talk about this often, but I feel like it's important to mention that a lot of the times we try to keep our behaviors as a secret and secrets are, are heavy to carry. But I also feel, and I can't remember who I heard this from, but everything that we do to harm ourselves, even when it's not perceived that way, is a call for help. So I do feel like the general, as scared as we are, the general feeling when we finally decide to ask for help. And sometimes that is even through 
kind of a forced help or intervention, whatever situation is, it is such a sense of relief, like deep down, our little inner child is just like, somebody, please help, Mm -hmm. help, help, help. And when that happens, it's like, I can like hear myself sighing in relief. (laughs) It's so true. I have a question that I normally don't address here on the podcast. And just listening to how you talk and how you you said that like I knew exactly who I needed to go for help I knew exactly and I saw the shooting star how connected are you to like faith or guidance or what is your relationship with faith because it sounds like you were catching on to signs is what I'm trying to say (laughs) I'm so glad you asked that question um it gave me complete chills I will say that I grew up in a super religious home always had God there, but didn't always make him my number one pursuit. And I think that's where I got off track for so much of my life. Whereas recently, I have really committed to the spiritual side of my program. And really just depending on God and um, listening, I think God speaks a lot through people, which is why I love the podcast, because I feel like he, he definitely sends messages. I know not only to me, but to a lot of people. He just speaks through people. So it's just really cool. I don't think anything happens coincidentally. I think everything really does happen for a reason. And I can't even, I can't say enough about my faith. I, I just, it's grown so much in the past nine months. I, I just hit nine months yesterday, by the way. It was, yes. What did you do to celebrate? Did you celebrate? Did you eat ice cream? <laughs> I woke up without a hangover. That was my celebration. Yes. Played with my dog. Just, you know, living life is my celebration. So it was really awesome. Awesome day. Being present. And thank you for sharing that. I, it's very known that talking about higher power, God is a controversial topic in, in the recovery world. And I don't shy away from this topic at all. I just don't bring it up a ton. But everyone is truly on their own journey. And I think the neat thing about recovery is that it allows you to discover how malleable we are and how we can change and adapt. Because I think for the most part, there's this like blanket statement of the older we get, we get more set in our ways and and that's who we are and it's harder to change. And I've really slowly seen through other people and through myself how we can debunk that myth time and time again. And it happens in multiple aspects of our life. Like it happens through recovery, through exercise, through how you connect with people and relationships. But I think one of the chunks of the cake where you can see how much you can actually change is the slice of faith and how you can be in a completely different place with your faith a year ago than now. And maybe in five years, you'll be in a completely different space. But I do like advising people to just stay curious and stay open and If you are a perfectionist like I was for a long time, just trusting that you're not in charge of everything is another wave of relief. Trusting that I'm not actually in control of everything. I'm not I don't have to have the solutions to everything. I don't have to fix everybody. Like what a freaking relief to know that that's not even my role. That is not my role at all. And I don't even want it anymore. You know, so that's I've changed a lot with my relationship with my higher power and faith and God, but I do want to t- 
take this opportunity to remind listeners to just try to keep an open mind and and try to be open to change because we can change as often as we want to. And it's pretty neat. Uh, It's so incredible. You're right. And just the evolution, like you said, of my relationship with God in nine months, the amount it has grown and gained sweetness and depth and just just such a close relationship with him. I'm like, I'm so looking forward to the future and seeing how much more it's going to evolve and develop, um, which is not something I could have said nine months ago. I I didn't really have an excitement for the future or anything. So it's just, it's an amazing, amazing journey. That's awesome. And tell me about those initial months, Emmy. Was it hard withdrawing? Was it hard just adjusting to new habits if you were drinking every day at home after a long day at work? Like, how did you have to adjust your day to day at the beginning? So I was actually thinking about this the other day. I feel like the first three months were just this release of emotion. And I I didn't, I have to be honest, I didn't really have a whole lot of cravings. It wasn't, I, I didn't really want alcohol anymore. And I, I was really grateful to God, you know, he kind of took that obsession away from me pretty quickly. But it was just like learning how to be a human, (laughs) you know, basically learning to walk for the first time sober. And so the yeah, the first three months were just the release of emotion. And then I kind of started realizing that like, oh, I still have problems in life. So learning how to deal with problems without running to alcohol was kind of the first or the next little section of my recovery. And right now I'm just in this la-la phase of getting to know God, getting to know myself. And I'm just now getting to where I've got this routine that's like just really enriching. I'm doing the same thing every single day. And it's just, I'm giving myself the stability that the little girl never got growing up. And it kind of makes me a little bit emotional, but it's just very empowering to know that I have that choice now. Yeah, that choice and also that strength to self-nurture yourself and to take that power back. Because I think that if we have a strong faith, like what you shared that you have, it's it's also understanding that faith doesn't remove empowerment. You're still empowered to take care of yourself, to take action. You know, you're not just hoping days get better or hoping things change. You're actually empowered to like you said, give yourself the love and stability that you needed when you were younger. And now you're basically taking that power back. So I'm really happy to hear that. Before I ask about the day-to-day and your routine and what you've established now, tell me what you do, because you said you started realizing them problems didn't go away, because of course they don't go away and they will never go away. But what did you realize that was your go-to when you were faced with a problem once you were sober, like how did you handle with negative emotions or did you find any new tools or what is your go-to when you have an obstacle thrown your way? So this is something I'm currently trying to strengthen and it is the pause. I cannot stress the pause enough. Just pausing before reacting to anything, pausing before I let myself come up with some negative reactions or thoughts to things. That's really been the biggest, you know, take maybe it take if I have to take five minutes to myself and just breathe, um, being super patient, because I think a lot of my time in drinking and even before I've been super impulsive and thinking that I ha- I don't have a choice not to react to things. And I thought I had to react to everything. I thought I had to 
project everything I was feeling on everybody else. So pausing has just been the biggest thing for me. And I'm still not the best at it, but it's getting better, I think, every day. And progress, not perfection, you know, so. (laughs) Yeah, you and I both. I've known about the pause for a long time, but I don't always get the pause right. So (laughs) just keep practicing. And it is an amazing tool, just allowing yourself to slow down and having time to think like, what is this bringing up in me? Is this bringing up a fear in me? You know, just Mm -hmm. continuing to get to know yourself through the pause, I think is such a gift of this journey and such a gift of sobriety. So stay practicing this because I know how helpful it is for you and those around you, because you also teach people that you're interacting with that they can do it as well, you know, because when they see a different you, then people get curious. Tell me about your routine, Emmy. Okay, it's the best. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's nothing remarkable. But I basically wake up, I don't set my alarm because my dog wakes me up at the exact same time every morning. It's pretty miraculous. And then I take her outside, feed her and then I sit at my table and I do a daily devotional. And then I write in my journal and I have several journals for different reasons. You know, I have my like God journal and then I have a recovery journal and then just kind of um, a random other journal. I don't even know what that one's for, but I have it. <laughs> just make sure I journal and get my thoughts out of my head early in the day. And then sometimes um, my job's pretty flexible. So I don't start work until around 11 or 12. Thank, thank goodness. Um, and so I usually take time to just relax and do nothing for a little bit. And that's, you know, my form of meditation right now, because I'm not the most practiced in meditation. But I've been working on that, you know, even if it's just two minutes of clearing my head after I've journaled, um, I just I need that time to be able to function in the day. And then if it's not too hot or not raining, I, I like to at least move my body outside. If that's walking or just kind of going outside with my dog, there's a little dog park here. We let her run around and just kind of breathe fresh air. And then I allow myself to come in and, you know, get start getting work done or do whatever I need to get done. But, you know, my God and my recovery have to come before everything or else I sort of lose sight of, you know, motives for the day or whatever else I have going on. Yeah, that morning routine. I like that you specified that you don't have an alarm. I'm an early riser and I get a lot of questions on like, but I don't want to wake up that early. You know, I don't I don't even have to because my day starts later or some people are like not ma- not much of that morning person and maybe a little more of a night owl. And that's totally fine. I think there's all these different personalities out there. But I do think that whatever time you decide to get up as doing that first and filling your cup first really sets the tone for the day. And and the order doesn't matter. The structure doesn't matter. But I do feel like there's something about taking care of that first before the long list of to do's that we all have that just sets you up for success and is really grounding. Absolutely. What is your favorite part of this journey so far? What happened to your meetings? Are you still going virtually or can you go in person? Um, We are doing in person now. It was only virtual for a couple months and I actually really enjoyed them. You know, of course, it was awkward at first, just adjusting to change. Um, that's hard, but I, I liked them a lot. But then once the in-person meetings came back up, I started going a lot more. I go maybe four or five a week, probably, in person. That's awesome. It's important. It's It's been a, like I was used to Zoom calls and webinars before mm-hmm. this, but I know a lot of people 
have had to adjust to, like you said, telehealth and meetings online. But honestly, nothing beats the feeling of seeing people in the flesh. So I'm sure that going back to that, even with all the precautions, just felt so good to see some of your friends in recovery. For me, I mean, friends in recovery are my favorite part of this journey, period. So I'm sure that felt really cool to go back. Absolutely. What's your go-to response when someone offers you a drink, Emmy? It's, I feel like it's different every time. It's kind of just whatever I'm feeling in the moment. I, I actually kind of like to make it funny. I really don't like taking myself too seriously. But um, I, I like to say, you know, I'm allergic or <laughs> it, makes me, it makes me mean. And some people like that answer. So that's not always a good answer to give. <laughs> but I, you know, I just kind of say, no, thank you. Or I'm allergic or, you know. I don't try to put too much thought into it because I know the outcome is that I'm not going to drink. So I don't really care what they're going to say back to me. You know, I love that. That's funny. Tell me if you have any thoughts. I know you're 30. So tell me if you have any thoughts about the future. Like, oh, if I ever get married, I'm not going to drink. Or like, do you have these moments? A lot of people talk about having these milestone moments and being like, how am I not going to be drinking during that special day? Do you think about that? I actually have. And I am glad you asked that because I know there's probably a lot of women out there that think the same thing because alcohol was such a huge part of my life and a huge part of my friend group. Still, I was like, no one's going to want to come to my wedding if I have a dry wedding and it's not going to be fun. But, you know, over the past nine months, I've realized it's really easy to have fun without alcohol. But I always just have to stay, you know, like they say, stay where my feet are. A big thing I would think of is like, what if a new brewery opens? Like, I would always be the first person in line to go, you know, visit new cool spots to hang out. But I just had to be like, you know what, what am I doing right this second? I'm sitting here, you know, drinking a LaCroix, enjoying life being present. And that's all I can think about. You know, I can't think about what life's going to bring in the future because then I just, you know, it goes down a dark path. So (laughs) I try to just stay super present. Where did you hear stay where my feet are? I like that a lot. Um, actually there's a woman in my group who, this is, she, she always says, where are your feet? Where are your feet? And it's like, oh, they're planted on firmly on the ground. Like I'm okay. And she just actually got a tattoo on her foot that says you are here, which is really cool. I think that's so funny because it's like, yeah, you're here. You don't have to worry about, you know, your wedding in the future or the next cool spot opening. So there has to be some crazy stat of like how much time we spend not in the moment. And it has to be a pretty large percentage over time (laughs) that we are not where our feet are. Exactly. I love that. Please tell her that I say that I really like that. (laughs) (laughs) How have the relationships in your life changed? So outside of your recovery circle, I feel like for a while for me, I felt like I had my recovery bubble and then the normal people in my life. And slowly over time, those two have kind of merged. But people who aren't part of your recovery circle, how have those relationships shifted and or changed in the last nine months? I think I'm pretty blessed in this area. I've got a a lot of really great friends who've supported me from the get-go. It hasn't changed much. I think I'm the person who's changed the most, more so being grateful for them and again, being present in conversations that I have and I don't forget them the next day. I think I just treat them better, maybe, you know. So, you know, not not a lot yet. I think um, I also need to remind myself that I'm still pretty early in my recovery. So I know there's a lot that could be changed in the future. 
but yeah, and and also moving to Texas, I kind of moved away from everybody that I used to drink with. So I'm not really faced with them on a day-to-day basis. So I don't really have as much of that like temptation to engage in drinking with them and stuff. We do a really good job of keeping the long distance friendships going. That's awesome. And it's good that you feel supported. It's so important in our journey to have just that network of friends in and outside of recovery who you just know that they have your back. Tell me, Amy, if you found any other valuable resources outside of your group and outside of your morning routine. Have you found, I don't know, where do you find your motivation and inspiration from outside of your meetings? This is not a plug, but <laughs> Recovery Elevator podcast, like if I have free time, I'm popping one of those on. Thanks and then, listening. yeah, I, I, I listened to it after my first meeting because I was, I got on my phone and I was like, recovery, you know, um, addiction, alcohol, whatever. So I just wanted to soak up as much as I could. And from there, I've just listened to almost every single day, um, that podcast of meetings, like you said, and talking to my sponsor through hard times has been super, super helpful. Other than that, just a lot of prayer and um, journaling. But, you know, other than that, meetings and recovery elevators about the extent of my resources right now. Thanks again for listening. And I'm going to steal a question from one of my favorite podcasts, Recovery Happy Hour. My good friend Trisha is a host and she always asks people on her podcast, what do you feel or what do you associate with the word alcoholic? So I'm curious about your answer to this question. I don't really have a problem with it because I I see me admitting my alcoholism as an opportunity rather than a label or something, you know, to put me down. I don't think anybody should have to admit that they are an alcoholic, but I also don't think that there should be a negative connotation on it at all. It's just the same as any other disease, you know. And so I don't have a problem with admitting it. I actually felt a lot of relief when I said it because I knew that there was a, a solution to alcoholism if I if I wanted to pursue it. Yeah, it's almost like you were able to detach from it, which is part of the relief. All right, Emmy. Well, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabulous. Are you ready? Yes, ma'am. All right. What are you excited about right now? What possibilities in your life? I'm excited about getting to help other people in recovery sort of shifted from, you know, working on myself to giving opportunity to other people. I love that. What do you bring to a party when they tell you to bring your own drinks nowadays? LaCroix. I love passion fruit LaCroix. (laughs) There's so many good flavors out there. Yes. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Chocolate truffle briars. It is so good. So rich and satisfying. (laughs) What's a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? I think my first meeting, somebody said, if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. <laughs> and it sort of gave me this light bulb that, oh, I have a choice. I don't have to pick up the first drink. Oh, my gosh. This reminds me of I'm going to totally interrupt the rapid <laughs> fire and go on a tangent. But Facebook, you know, Facebook ads are so interesting. I got this Facebook ad literally like two days ago. And I've really been working on the pause like you. And I don't really get bothered by like, I don't really get bothered by a lot, which I'm very proud of because I've 
put a lot of work there, but there was an ad and it was about this pill that helped you deal with your anxiety of the day after drinking. I was like, if you drink too much, I think it was called Cheers and it's like really pretty bottle like very they put a lot of money in the marketing you could tell that they just the branding and the fonts beautiful and it's like take this cheers after you drink and don't have to worry ever again and I like could not help myself and I went on the comments and you know like and I wrote you know what also helps you not have any anxiety the day after drinking not drinking (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) I, I was like rarely do I get reactive on Facebook that I was like, really, there's a much better hack for this. Just don't pick up the bottle. That's amazing. I love that. Oh, goodness. <laughs> what has recovery made possible for you, Emmy? Oh, self-love. That's the biggest thing. I don't think I could have done it without, you know, first getting rid of alcohol. And that's just been super, super important in my journey. What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Ooh, I'm not a guru by any means, but um, just keep some open-mindedness and willingness. Don't be too hard on yourself. That is the number one thing. Um, and, you know, just don't be afraid to explore. If, you, if, if the thought has crossed your mind that you have a problem, just give it a try. Yeah, stay curious. And before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. Oh, you might have to say adios to booze if getting a drink singular with someone sounds like a waste of time. (laughs) Oh, Emmy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate you so much. Take care and stay in touch. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Very well, Timari. That's a wrap. And before I say adios, I want to give you a little challenge. Think of something in your baggage backpack that you know is there, but you haven't wanted to address. You've been too scared to take that book out. This could be either a character defect, a hard conversation with someone, a task that you've been putting off, anything that can lighten your load. Muster up the courage and go for it. You are brave and so much more capable than you think. Also, if you're an adult child of an alcoholic and you're listening to this, I am with you. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, without the darkness, you would never know the light. I love you guys. Decisions that always lead to the same actions. 
constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. And it's these feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change your thinking.